This is Nigel Melville, CEO of USA Rugby on Rugger Matrix America. Thanks, Nigel. Nigel Melville, CEO of American Rugby, joining us for Show 28. Yes, Show 28 of Rugger Matrix America. Juro, senior host, and joined by Bruce McLean shortly as we look at everything from the CEO's point of view. Yes, hello and welcome to episode 28 of Rugger Matrix America. Uh, we couldn't be around last week. We were looking for our special guest and we played a bit of Skype tag. So we held off and tonight we do have Nigel Melville, the man himself, the man who runs American Rugby. And pretty happy to have this guy on as well, co-host Bruce McLean. He is our guest. He had a couple of family issues that he had to tend to in England, and I hope everything's okay with your dad, Nigel. But we're here to talk about age-grade rugby, the board of directors, the U.S. Olympic Committee, and then there's some crazy Super League nonsense going on. I'll probably comment on Nigel probably doesn't wouldn't know, and I, I probably want to talk a little bit of a college Premier League. But Nigel, it's great to have you. Thanks for coming on, buddy. Thank you, Bruce. Sorry I was away, but I've dashed back, and good to speak to you. Well, far away, Bruce. Don't hold back. Well, well, Nigel, first things first. Um, you know, obviously it was a, a small pet peeve of mine about the USA age grade programs. And I think that we had spoken off air and you had said that come December, uh, the Christmas, just after Christmas, that the age grade programs are basically going to be run December through June or, June or July or whatever their culmination trip is for the U.S. All-Americans. It's in August. But and we had spoken about the pos, you know, the high school American program, the college All-American program and the U-20s program. And you had said to me off air that you would give each of them one hundred thousand dollars to operate from say, December 27th or 28th through their culmination or their end. And they could spend it essentially within reason how they want to. Could could you confirm that or let it's me, you know, exactly. wait, wait. Brucey, as you know, it's not exactly what we said. What we said was it would probably cost about 300000 to run those programs, all three, um, that we run from probably December, early January, all the way through till. Uh, July, August each year. Um, at the moment, we are reviewing the programs and wondering what to do with them 2011 because we're pretty pleased with the way that the All-American Collegiate team is growing and the program's growing. I think they tour every year. That's something that's really strong. I went to New Zealand a couple of years ago with them and I realized the potential of that program. We need to get the funding in there to make sure they can tour every year because these guys, we watch them all year. We have a good selection processes. The ITTs were particularly successful uh, and I think that it's a, a winning, a winning uh, step for us to continue building that program. The All-American High Schools was a little bit of a change. We changed that um, away from just being under-17s into a, a more robust program, we believe, that can be a little bit more flexible to us in terms of selecting players, taking them on tour every year, probably going somewhere like they did a couple of months ago. Well, last month, actually, they went to Canada and giving them a little bit of a taste of international rugby ahead of being um, selected potentially into U20s and going on to the All-American Collegiate. The U20s is one where we always have a little bit of a problem. It's an IRB um, age group. They're pushing it real hard. 
They want it to be the the uh, competitive sort of benchmark for teams um, around the world. A lot of the change in dates there and years has been because a lot of the players once they get to U20s are in professional academies. And so it worked really well for some of the bigger nations. Worked less well for us because we still have people in school and in colleges, graduation and all kinds of things. And that was seriously impacting on the ability of us to put the best teams together. So what we've done is we'll take a hard look at that. And we've been lobbying real hard with the IRB to move the Junior World Trophy into a better window for us, which potentially would be June, late June. So we think we've got there with that particular program. And in 2011, we think we'll have a really good competitive year for the U20s. We think they will be able to play in a Junior World Trophy, hopefully in America, um, if our bid process works for us. And uh, we've been talking to the IRB about the dates, shifting the date, shifting the window to make it better for us so we can have all our best players and make it a meaningful experience for U20s and the coaches and everybody involved in that program. So in order to fund that, it's about 300000 a year. And we're short of that at the moment. We need to build that. I think we have to allocate that in our next year of budgeting. And I think that's where we're heading. Well, I, I think that we're, sh- you know, we're short of it for this year. But we, we had spoken about the fact that it would be available next year. Because I, I think that from all accounts, and, and yours, yours too, it's foolish to eat the seed corn that there's a lot of high-quality players who have come through these age-grade programs and I think it's important. And I spoke to, I spoke to Kevin Battle, who's the manager of the All Americans, and he said about a hundred thousand dollars does us a proper tour at the end of the year. It does us right. That that's a good budget for us. I spoke to Scott Lawrence, the high school American coach who coaches Life University as well, and he said hundred thousand dollars he can do everything right. And I spoke to Ray Lehner, who's the under twenties coach, and he said that. In order for him to perform properly at the under twenties championship or the junior world trophy, that it would probably take about one hundred and fifty grand. And during that conversation that we had, we said that it would be about that there would be allocated about a hundred each, and that we would try to figure out a way. You know, if those guys could raise a little extra money, like in my mind, I would say, okay, you got a hundred, you got a hundred. And you got a hundred, and we'll try to get you one hundred and fifty, Ray, because we understand the importance of the Junior World Trophy, especially if we're fortunate enough to be able to host it. We understand the importance of of coming into the semifinals of it. So, but on the from the other perspective, is where you look at the college all Americans and that tour experience and that overseas experience. And they're playing academies this year. It'd be really nice. Maybe one year they could play Scotland under twenty maybe the Saracens Academy, you know, just kind of gauge as to what is the difference between an, uh, a professional academy team and a, and a Scotland under 20 team or, or something like that. A, a team that we should be able to beat in the IRB circles, whether it's Italy under 20 or whatever, and, 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 and playing an academy team, those are good. But I was talking to Scott Lawrence about the under 18s or the high school Americans program. And what he said is, is it better to have players come in and be coached or is it better to have coaches go out and identify talent? You know, he's like, why don't we try to find out who the real athletes are and then get them into our elite program as opposed to bringing 50 guys or 40 guys or 35 guys in. And if we got the wrong guys, we don't have, it costs a lot of money to get them in there. 
where it doesn't cost a lot of money for me to fly somewhere or drive somewhere. I'm working for Oracle at this point, and I can have a little bit of a camp over the weekend and kind of see what all these players are about and see how good they are. Because at some point, there has to be an identification process. Then there's a coaching process. And at the under-20s level and at the, at the high school Amer- college All-American level, you really want them playing. Ideally, at the high school American level, if you can, if you can identify them. But identifying them is, is a pretty important step. I've spoken quite a bit there. So is I'll let Nigel question? take over. So is there a question is that just there? just one question? <laughs> the question? The question is, I spoke to you about giving them 300 grand, and now you're backing down. I want you to say, like, no, yeah, not. I'm going to give well, them 300 saying, grand. You said, you said 300 grand, and then you came out with the coaches want 350 grand. So... You know, these round I know. Don't... I said the coaches want three hundred fifty grand, but I think that they'll live with the three hundred grand, knowing that they'll get it. Like it, you know, it's kind of like one of those things. They want, they want to know, like, and then I'll, and I want to, fo- I'll follow up with that three hundred grand, and say, is it fair enough to say? And and this is my thought. If I were coaching a team, and you said Bruce, you got a hundred grand, I'd be like, okay, and. It, I would rather you say you got a hundred grand. You're not getting a penny more, and this is what I expect you to do, as opposed to kind of a piecemeal thing. If if I have the team and I have a budget, I'd rather say, all right, I'll work within that. And if you don't like what I do, fire me. Yeah. But, okay. Well, look at that. The other thing about these round figures is that the the U20s next year, if we're hosting the uh, the Junior World Trophy, that's a totally different budget situation to to going abroad because. IRB pay a lot of the funds for them to come in and their accommodation, all kinds of things. So that changes these budget things. So we have to have the program written and then you budget against the program. So you can't just can come I, up can with I, I, I want to, I want to, I knew, I do need to jump in there. I'm talking about outside of the tournament. So that 150 grand that I spoke to Ray about was outside of the tournament. It wasn't, yeah. it did not include tournament funding. Well, I can ask you to show me how the budget. Because the tournament is no, I, I, I'm not. I didn't. I, I'm not asking. I, I didn't ask anything about that. All I said is that outside of the tournament, in order to properly run the program and get the, in order to get the um, the preparation that they felt they needed to be successful, and and Salty had the exact. Actually, Salty came up with 160, and Ray came up with 150. So you. You know, you're within ten thousand dollars of each other of two people who have some experience into how this how this process actually works. All I'm saying, and that's outside. They understand that the tournament is funded by the IRB. Whether or not they leave from New York City and go to Dubai, or they leave, or or everybody arrives in Denver. And I know that I'm, and I don't know all the finite details. And obviously, those finite details could be worth twenty grand. I'm just oh, saying exactly. that that's. I think it's- Bruce, look, the, the thing is we sit down with the coaches and go through the program, and that's what we need to do. Um, just calling out figures out the air isn't going to solve it. Yes, they've come up with figures. We've got to look at those and see what's workable. And, you know, if they're saying it's 160 and it's 100, then we've got to look at what's the difference. You know, could we raise that money, et cetera? So I think that, you know, we're in the ballpark. We know that we need to get the funding to required levels for three specific programs we think are really important, and that's what we're going to do. And that process starts in September, and we'll go through, you know, and before the board and all the rest of it and the processes that we have in place. So, you know, I agree with you, but accountability is important for coaches and for managers to make sure we control costs. So certainly, of course it is. And yes, if a, if a coach doesn't, doesn't perform to the required levels, for example, if we're going to U20s, 
and we've made a lot of effort to get it here and we're backing it with the right support, we expect to win it, to be honest, because you know we're capable of doing that. So we would expect to, to put some benchmarking on that and some standards. We do that with other programs. We do it with Eddie. We do it with Al Caravelli. And you know, as we move down the programs, we'll see essentially what we'll be doing with our other coaches. Yeah, see, and 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 that's where I, that's where I would come up with a small disagreement is, like, to me, the winning it doesn't matter that much. And obviously, yes, you want to win, you want to have results, but in in any situation, even even in if you were coaching a Premiership situation or you were coaching English in the England national team, you're really a few injuries away from a real different style of team that possibly can't win or that Absolutely, possibly but- isn't. And, 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 and those kind of things, I think that when, when you look at the approach, when you look at are, are the players training all the time, have they made dramatic improvements, are, are, the, are the athletes that we have better, are they working very hard? Like that kind of thing says to me like, okay, we had two six-foot-five second rows one was a basketball transfer, one was a water polo transfer, and they went from being able to power clean 95 pounds to being able to power clean 275, and they have good scrum profiles, and they can win lineouts. They don't, but they're poor on kickoffs and always have been, or whatever. Like, you could look at different things that guys have made real strides. I'm cool with that. I don't think we need to have... I don't think we have to be so results based because you, you look at um if you look at the 2002 Italy uh, under 19s championship it had Todd Clever it had Mike Petrie it had you know Frank Sharp Richie White and a, and, a, and a couple other guys on it they didn't win anything and and it was because there was a there, there was a little bit of disarray in in in, in a new coach and there was a, a, a coaching change mid mid tournament but. You know, you got a lot of caps out of that. You got a lot of people who were playing out of that who were quality, capable players. I think that if you identify them and they're going to translate into Eagles, that's still successful to me. And, and look, I, honestly, I know, I know about wins and losses and they have to be important. But we, are, we also have to look at different ways of... of all, right, Bruce, Bruce, all right, let's let Nigel Bruce. respond, mate. There's no chance of me talking here. The important thing here is to benchmark on different levels. Yes, you benchmark on talent ID. Yes, you can benchmark on fitness levels. Yes, you can benchmark on, as a coach wants to win the thing. You know, usually coaches want to do that. Our women going to the World Cup, you know, they want to be in the top four. When Al Caravelli is on the circuit, we want him to stay, retain core status for the year. That That means coming in the top 12. You know, we know that going to the World Cup, we're trying to get one or two wins, you know, through the Eagles. We benchmark according to what's realistic. You don't benchmark something that's not realistic. I think it's realistic to want to win that um, particular tournament. I think we can. I think it would be one of the benchmarks. So there are more than just one goal for the team. Yes, developing players is another one. You can look back and say, well, how many players did you push through into the next level? That, again, is a benchmark. So you can review it and you can look at it. And, you know, it's not the sole thing, as you say. It's not just winning. It's development. But you do want teams to go out there wanting to win. I mean, there's no doubt that if, if 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 winning is not in your in your goal set, then you have then then there's going to be issues along the way. I'm just saying that if winning is the only thing in your goal set, you forget about like if winning is the only thing that's important, you forget about the actual approach to the game and and how you train. As that's what causes winning. 
winning is not just caused by wanting to win. Everybody wants to win. Not everybody wants to put in the effort to win. And that's the difference. And you know what I'm saying there? That's that's all I was trying to bring bring about there. Yeah, but, 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 but Nigel, you're not saying that, are you? I mean, we're not saying that. What we're saying is that benchmarking is done on numerous levels. You know, particularly age grade, because age grade is about development. You know, as you say, you know, sometimes you have twelve players making up the team that the three real stars can develop through. You know, that's how it is at this level. And you know, we don't benchmark solely on winning, but we do want teams to go out to want to win. We want players to want to win for America. We want to be successful so they can move up the rankings into the better tournament, playing against New Zealand and England and those guys. So a win would be hugely beneficial if we didn't think we could then fair enough top four might be the challenge or the goal but we need to try and make sure that everyone's aware that winning at international level is pretty important so from your point of view what's the brief what's the brief from american rugby to those coaches well for the brief is we look at each program each year and say what do we expect out of it we expect more from the u20s because they're going to world tournament probably than we would um probably with the the um all american high schools uh, the All-American High Schools were looking for talent ID. And exactly what Bruce said, we're looking for these these guys who are probably a little bit new to it, these big athletes, the guys who can get in there and start to develop them. And yet, we can't just bring 50 or 60 people in. What we do is we have to be more selective about that when we go to elite camps and during the year identify players. Like We have examples in the front row where Bill Leclerc takes a number of players across all age groups, visits them during the year and develops them. And that's why the likes of Sean Pittman have come through. Um, is working with some crossover athletes at the moment to see what we can do with them. So, you know, these things are going on, and I agree with Bruce. You know, it's not just one one answer, and Scott Lawrence is a very, very capable coach with the, with the um, All-American high schools, and he knows that bringing in 50 or 60 players doesn't give you the quality coaching time that they require. So the coaches, yes, they need to go out and talent ID, and yes, they need to work with those elite players. And I think that's where Ray Leno has been coming from. He wants to work with those elite players, not getting into U20s because they're available, because the others aren't. We need a window where we can get all the best players in that particular group together and then work with them and give them a really good, valuable international tournament to play in. Yeah, and, and, and you know what, and, and, and Jero, this is, we actually have an, an odd situation here in America in that we're in school during the U20s tournament and a lot of our best U20 players are in school and, they, and their parents are paying 50 grand a year for them to go to school. So, you know, it's tough to say, yeah, hey, you're going to take off a month to go to the U20s tournament. And so not all the parents necessarily have a buy-in. And that's why Nigel wants to, had bid for the U20 tournament to be in America so that we can kind of switch the focus and put it at a different time where we could put our best foot forward. Now, that all being said, I did speak to Salty about this briefly, and and he said he, when he got into when he was into it, he was he was a little bit disturbed early on for the first year, maybe that he didn't always have his best guys. And then he said, then he took a different tact as to how we thought about it. He's like, you know what? I my job is to develop players to, who are capable international players, and I just look at it as a dual pathway. That the collegiate programs, who are elite collegiate programs, are one pathway for their players to identify players to be on the Eagles. Because you see them, the coaches look at them, and they know to go there. The other pathway for somebody who maybe didn't go to college or somebody who went to a lesser college or something like that, they may have to go through the under-20s program. And I'll take these guys, and I'll search these guys out, 
and and we'll find a, a program and we'll try to use those guys and get and, and and you take a look and you say you get a guy like a Todd Clever who went to the University of Nevada Reno or who was in a small high school program and and things like that. You you, you find these players. There are diamonds in the rough. There are diamonds. Period. And 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 I think that where you're saying, yeah, I want to have my best under twenties out there. Is it the end of the world to have that dual pathway, even if we have to do it for a year or two? To get it right, I mean, I don't well, know. The college yeah, yeah, Premier League and everything. Yeah, 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 just let him answer from there. At the end of the day, you know, it would be great to have all our best players there. But any coach of any international team will tell you, and that's Eddie, that's Al, that's uh, you know, any any coach around the world. You very rarely have all your players available, and you have to make do. Yes, Salty recognised the situation he had, which was, you know, he's not going to have all his best players. My thoughts are, well, can we get all the best players together and would that be an advantage? Of course it would. And recognizing players from other areas, there's no reason why those aren't our best players. You know, these diamonds in the rough are out there. We're identifying them. I think the high school program's helping tremendously with that. We know when we're tracking whose players are going to be available and when, and we're trying to build them up. So, yes, I agree that you can just take that tournament as it is in the block it was already in, the time-wise, and, and make do. But that might not be the best thing for us in terms of developing competition and standards and going into the, the trophy, into the cup above it. So I think it's a mixture of those two. If we can make this work in our window, let's give it a go and see how good our under-20s are. Oh, Nigel, I totally agree with you. That you want to make, make this work in our window in June. That's totally understandable. I'm just saying that in the event that the, the bid process doesn't work out, I, you know, having a dual pathway or a competing pathway isn't the end of the world either. It's just the way it's the way we have to deal with because we're going to eventually get that junior world trophy. And when we do, they may say, well, you know, nobody expected America to do anything. And then, bam, these guys just all of a sudden really performed quite well because they never they never played our first team. That's right. You know, it, it's a case of development. And if we are, we're challenging, we're trying this at the moment. If we can't get in that window, then we're going to make do with another window and that's life. But, you know, we're seeing an opportunity here. I think it would be a good opportunity for us. I think also we could provide, produce a good tournament here, um, which would help our players play at home, help grow the game as well to be hosting a, a world tournament here. And uh, let's see if we can do it. I think there'd be a lot of support elsewhere for the tournament to, to be stateside. From a perception point of view, how, how important, Nigel, is it for the under-20s, for, for America to make a statement to the IRB? Because they obviously watch where these investment dollars go. Yeah, it's important. You know, they, we, we've invested pretty heavily in our sevens teams um, to help on the pathway to getting international players. We want to work down that system. We think that the All-American Collegiate team is a really powerful um, tool for us in terms of developing them into international understanding like going to South Africa or going to New Zealand, going to the UK. And Bruce is right. If we could get some international U20 teams to players in that window, which again is really difficult because they're all in pre-season, they're all in academies, then that would be another step forward for that picture. Nigel, I just want to get back to the, to the one statement again. Like, It's going to take somewhere between 300 and 350 to make this work from the December 28th on. And I'm asking you to say $350,000 is, is, is the SIP dues for 10,000 kids, 10,000 adult males or, or young males. 
And I would even say adult I, – I would rather spend money on this than anything else. So as far as you know, adult male SIP, I, I, I put that in there because without these kids, without these programs, I have no team, so I have nobody to coach. So from a very selfish perspective, I want these kids playing elite rugby because I have somebody to coach then. So is, this isn't all altruistic Brucey. This is also, this is also Brucey being very selfish. And, Absolutely. And I was just asking for the advantages here, and we mentioned it earlier, we're probably going on to it, is the USOC and the, the impact of sevens. The impact of sevens to us is significant because at the moment IRB funding is stretched over you know, a tremendous horizon in terms of different teams. Um, the, the fact that the USOC are going to help us as well, specifically for sevens, releases funds into 15s, which is going to help us with IRB. Yes, it also might be some elements of SIP money as well. But we have to come up with that figure. We know where the figure is. It's about that 300, 350,000 you mentioned. We have to make that happen. And that's how you grow this program and develop it. I think we are right now to have All American High Schools U20s and All American Collegiate. I think those are the three levels that works just well for us getting the windows right, getting the competitions right, and then making sure the funding to support it's right. That's the next stage for us. And how, how close are we to saying, like, I. I was erroneously under the under the impression that we actually had the funding to make it work. How close are we for the funding to make those three programs work? Like to to me, those well, three we, programs are the quintessential programs for for age grade anyway. No, we're very very close, and uh, you know we are working hard on that. We are, we we believe that obviously with new budget year two thousand eleven, focus on these things are very very important and. Uh, it's, it's making sure the dollars are available to, to take these programs to the next stage. Our first stage was, are these programs the right programs? We believe they are now. We need to get the right competitions and the right program for each of them. All right, Bruce, and, are, and you, that, are you almost done with the development? Because I wanted to move on. Yeah, Bronk, I, and, and, and I agree with what he's saying. I was just trying – honestly, Bronk, I was trying to press Nigel for uh, saying that he would guarantee $300,000 and that he would – Get, oh, and if he could get the 350, guarantee 350, because that's what the guys want. So I was basically trying to use the the forum of a of an open air show to to get that. Now, but I'm willing to move on. I want to talk about what's going on in the United States Olympic Committee development. What's going on with them? Talk to us about what they're willing to do. And then you know, I want to talk. I, after that, I want to talk about the board members. And then after that, I want to talk about a little bit about game planning. Because you have an interesting French-style game plan that you use at Gloucester for a bit, so I want to talk about that too. Yeah. Just so you got it in your head as you're going forward. But now yeah, I want right. to talk about USOC. Give us the spiel. Full out. Sell us. Okay. What's happening? Sixth of August is a big date for us. We we basically been working with the USOC High Performance Unit, developing a plan. All our national governing bodies develop a plan and present it to the USOC on or around the beginning of August. They, our date, I think, is the 6th of August. Uh, we go down and present um, our program back to them. We've been working with someone called April Henricks, and you probably remember April Henricks. She was the USA soccer coach um, for the women, and she's a high-performance consultant for team sports with the USOC, and she's been a huge help in saying, look, this is what you need to do. This is what's possible. This is how you develop, because... What happens with the USOC is that they fund in four-year cycles following each uh, Olympic Games. So the important thing for us is making sure that we can get funding before the four-year cycle starts prior to 2016. So we're looking for funding to help us in the 11 and 12 
to build not only a good Pan Am Games squad for the Pan Am Games 2011, but also develop a pipeline of athletes developing through to 2016 and to 2020. So the program takes into account men and women, the opportunities for training, the opportunities for high-performance funding, support, stipends, residencies, all kinds of things, and also the competition program that will give our teams the best chance of developing world-class teams that could compete in the Olympics. So that's really where, where we're heading with the USOC program. It's pretty exciting. They're looking forward to working with us, and they've got some great ideas of how they can help us. So hopefully after August the uh, 6th, they're going to give us an idea and a bit of a steer about where we can take this and what, what we can do with our teams going forward into 2011, 2012, before we pick up on the full four-year cycle going into the 2016 Olympics. When they help us, are they in August, are we looking to get money for college sevens players or 16-year-olds or 15-year-olds or all of the above or the men's national team and women's national team? Actually, the women's national team probably gives us a better opportunity to medal um, initially. But uh, I was just wondering, like, what are we looking for from the USOC, or can you not say that yet? Well, I can give you a bit of a steer. We're looking at having a, a residency training program, so we'll have a, um, a facility available to us where we can train, and all our national teams will be able to use that, which does have accommodation, which does have uh, great training facilities that we can access. Also aligned to that will be a lot of high-performance support, such as nutrition, such as conditioning, such as psychology, and all kinds of things where they believe they can help us in team sports. Um, on top of that, we're looking at the wider program. So we're looking at college and high school and saying what competitions could they help us drive to make sure we're getting some sevens players playing at high school, playing at, uh, uh, at college competitions, and how we're identifying those talents and tracking them to make sure we can build a pipeline of athletes you know, that, that can go through to the Olympics. The other side of this, they're also keen for us to help help us actually across the 40-plus governing bodies they've got to see whether there are opportunities where athletes can cross over. We've talked about crossover athletes for a long time. Uh, we're working on the potential of putting some combines in place where people can come up, try them out, see if they're any good, see what they could do, see if we can spot some potential. And a number of combines, the way we could say, well, actually, here's some, some potential athletes for rugby that we can convert. So again, it's all-encompassing. It's looking at high school sevens, it's looking at college sevens, men and women. It's looking at residences, high-performance support, and also crossover and combine. So a number of things. And uh, it's a very exciting program. It's, uh, it certainly will help us in the short term as well uh, with our national team because we have some athletes there who we believe may be around 2016. So, again, they will get increased support, um, insurance, opportunities to, to live the life of a professional athlete through residency and stipends. I want to. I want to just say one thing very briefly, and I want to he, hear what you, I was speaking to Tony Rennell, and, and I would like to come on the show with you and Tony Rennell, Rob Holder, and possibly Scott Lawrence, and discuss some of the seven stuff. But one of the things that I was talking to Tony about is men versus women in 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 most sports, whether it's soccer or 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 basketball, or, or that women's sports is is not as big as the men's sport. However, the one place where there's an equal footing is the Olympics. When a, a female or a female team or whatever does well in the Olympics and gets a medal, a gold medal, silver medal, or whatever, it is the one time that it's equal to the men's championship. Yeah. And possibly the other, the other place that it would be would be 
in in a major in tennis. Like yep. that's the those are the places where it's really equal. And my perspective is, and and I could be completely off off the mark here, but my perspective is our best chance of meddling in the Olympics is in is in the women's game. And, that, and that's not to take anything away because you go in and, and you get into that knockout round. I mean, you're one win from a guaranteed medal or you're, you know, you're one, you know, you got four teams, four groups, of, four groups of three playing in that, uh, in that, in those medal rounds, you know, there's 12 teams and you get into that semifinal round and you're talking about you're one win away from a guaranteed medal and you're even a loss away from a chance. So there's a, there's a lot of, high quality things that go along with this and and what are we going to do for our women how are we well, going to help them our program is men and women it's totally equal there's no you know all this to the men and all this to the women you know a little bit to the women this is about everybody and and the whole thing about the olympic movement is where's your best chance to make the get the medal the really interesting data we've given them is that since the announcement of the olympics uh, a numerous uh, what you will call um um probably um, traditional Olympic bodies such as China and Russia have invested huge amounts of money into rugby programs for women. And it's no accident that at Las Vegas earlier this year, in February, we had a Chinese team come and win the, uh, the, the final for the women's tournament. And that's because they've suddenly seen an opportunity, a medal opportunity, not in the men, they're seeing it in the women. The interesting thing, again, in Canada, you go north of the border and they're investing more money into their women's program for the Olympics than they will for their men. And that's because, obviously, for the meddling situation. So it's hotting up the uh, competition in the women's game. We have to keep abreast of that. We have to make sure that we've got um, equal funding for them and give them the opportunities that will be equal to the men. China and Canada aren't beating us, and the only reason China was able to beat us in that thing was because we had split our sides, and, and that probably wasn't sensible on a home turf. But... um. Absolutely. All right. Whilst you're, on, Moving whilst, whilst you're on that point, just be, be just the fact they actually paid to come over and the government paid just gives you that identification issue. That's what they're doing. They're recognizing there's an opportunity for China in the Olympics and they're building this program now. And it's started. just a start. It's just a start. So they will get better. Yep. And the other one is Australia. Australia put a lot of money in. They have a lot of history with their high performance units of developing very strong um, what you call niche sport teams. Uh, in the Olympics, swimming was one where they dominated for a long time, and they're doing the same now with rugby. They think they can do it in men and women. Well, correct. The women's uh, program went through the roof with that famous victory uh, in the Middle East. So that was, uh, it works. It works if you put the resources behind it. Bruce? I, I was just saying that, I was saying what I said from a nationalist point of view. I wasn't saying what I said from the point of view of... Yeah, no, you know, we understand, we understand like, Bruce. Let's move on. Yeah. Let's move on to the next subject. Are you guys, are you guys bored with me? No, no. Um, just just yeah, shot, wanna, tighten, up the, tighten up the questions, Bruce. You, <laughs> you're getting I'm to the bored. question right at the end. You're just gibbering for the start. So let's get to let's go to the next subject. Yeah, um, Nigel, two board memberships are coming up, and I think that it's very important to have people come in. And I know this is a very touchy and tough subject for you. I think that uh, I think we have to have. John Prismack and Bob Phillips from Bob Phillips is the guy who put all the Dartmouth stuff together. I think we have to have them on the board. I think we have to have some, there has to be something on the board where there's a way to make, 
to make this work where, you know, they, they got to be people who really help us to get money into the program. And I know it's tough for you to, des- to describe, but I mean, from my perspective, even if we expanded the board or whatever, I know there's a lot of problems with getting the international athletes and they have to be sevens athletes, not necessarily 15s athletes. There's a couple of things with, with the Olympic committee that is, has made things change a bit. Uh, but from my perspective, we need guys like that, and and I spoke to Tony Rennell briefly about it as well, and and his interest, and and I don't know where Kevin Roberts if he's still interested or not, but I mean Bob Phillips and John Prusmak to me have to be on the board, and you know, and the last person that I said had to be on the board was Pete Setch, and I think that he's at least lived up to what his expectations are, and he's he's definitely put the time in. I could I could promise you that that he has. He has spent time, and I think that you could publicly promise us that Pete has spent time too. So he, he's definitely done the work. I don't know what the answer is, Nigel, and I was wondering to hear what you said. Well, it's interesting. As you say, it's difficult for me to discuss board issues, and uh, obviously Pete Seshier is the guy who you know we brought on last time, and he's done a fantastic job, and I work really well with Peter, and we, we get on pretty well. I think he's found it quite, uh, quite a strain. It wasn't quite what he thought it would be. Um, but he's done a great job with the college committee that he chairs. Um, he's very much involved in helping with some fundraising. And he's an ever-present, you know, he's the guy who uh, wants to be there and uh, attend the events and, and, and be there for us. So he's been a great help and a great addition. And in terms of two names you mentioned, in terms of uh, Bob Phillips and, and John, I'm actually meeting both of them this week, actually, in New York. So there's a bit of a steer that, you know, these guys are uh, involved and we're talking. And uh, there's a couple of other guys as well who have come come forward. Um, what I do push as well is that if somebody is interested, who I don't know about, who you know would like to be on the board, get the resumes in because we're collecting them at the moment, giving them to the nominations committee. They all come to me, you know, and then they go through to them. And and I really would like to know, you know, if people are genuinely interested and want to be on this board, then then let us know about it because you know we are looking. Um, there are opportunities ahead. And, uh, you know, as you've mentioned, two great guys who have really been supportive. John, obviously, with the Sevens and all the work he does. And obviously, Bob Phillips, who's supporting his All-Americans and very keen on getting involved in that program. So there's some great guys out there. And I want those guys involved. I want them engaged. I want them to enjoy the experience and really, you know, give everything they can towards helping us grow rugby all together in the U.S. I don't think it's a, we should be divisive. I don't think we should do things on our own. I think it's a big collective team effort. So they guys, I really appreciate the time and spending time with. And, uh, you know, I'd like to spend more and more time with them in the future. Well, and I, and I think that, you know, part, part of the issue is, is that a lot of guys don't spend the time. And, you know, you and Pete talk, I, I, from what I understand, you and Pete talk virtually every day, Monday to Friday, probably for an hour and, and, and sometimes for more. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And, and, and I think that if everybody spread it around, and, and, and my feeling is, and, and we'll discuss this in a later show, is that I would focus USA Rugby on Elite Rugby only, and, and, and we've, we've had this email discussion, we'll discuss it later. But we need strong members of the board, and, and it's great that you're meeting with Bob and meeting with John, and I hadn't spoken with John or Bob um, in, in the past few weeks, so I'm really glad that that's happening, and I think that's only going to be positive because they are quality people, and I think that's what we need. I mean, am I wrong or am I right? It's quality people. I'm not saying we haven't got quality people on the board. We just want the quality people you know, involved with rugby, and, and there's two guys who actually don't currently serve in any particular way um, with us in terms of the administration, but do an enormous amount for the game, 
And I like to embrace those people and bring them in. And they've got so much to offer. They're such good guys and they're good rugby guys. And, you know, I like working with great rugby guys. Working with Pete Sesher is an absolute privilege, you know, and a pleasure. You know, I don't have an hour a day on the phone. Goldman Sachs won't release him for that. But, you know, we do have time. But he's always very responsive. He's always on the, on the button. He's really keen to get things going. So are other board members as well. This isn't just, uh, you know, just Peter. There's other people working hard as well. Oh. So, yeah, you know, we're looking for new blood, new faces, new people embracing them, bringing them into the fold, and let's all work together because we have some fantastic times ahead of us. Bruce is going to ask you a, a coaching-specific question in a second. Yeah. But, Nigel, I wanted to ask you, from the leadership point of view, are you happy? Uh, happy with the progress of Eddie O'Sullivan so far? He's been in the job for a while now, and you've qualified for the World Cup, so that's a big tick. What are your thoughts on the progress so far? Well, I'm very impressed with, with the way Eddie goes about his work. He's, he's, he's very detail-orientated. Um, he's pretty pragmatic. He understands, you know, the the challenges that we've got, but he's prepared to accept those. He knew America, the sporting landscape, and the rugby landscape in America before he arrived. So I think that was a huge advantage for him. He hit the, the ground running. And uh, what I am impressed with is that he's got together a bunch of young coaches. We talked about this before he came along. That if we could get together some former Eagles guys, some guys who have, have shown a potential to coach, who we think we can fast track into strong positions, who modern day global game understanding those guys could be really useful for us going forward so you have your Dan Payne's your Matt Sherman's your, your um, people like Bill Leclerc on the back of that in specialist roles and so working in that group's been really good for us bringing forward people who we probably think you know um, could be of value to the teams going forward it's almost putting um, the next stages of our development in place you know people like Dave Hodges got so many caps for the for the Eagles have been a great advantage having him on board and his analysis and his understanding of the game. So I think people are developing around him and he's helping that process. He's working really hard and uh, I'm sure that uh, the, the World Cup will be fun. And what impresses you generally about American coaches? Because if there's one thing Americans do well in sport is they're the best at setting up coaching programs and, and by involving those Eagles is a bit of a masterstroke too. Yeah, I think bringing those young players along and keeping them involved at the elite level is very, very important. And that doesn't say we haven't got good coaches around. You know, Bruce is on the phone here. He's a, he's a really good good coach, doing a great job and a great benefit to a number of players and bringing those players through. You know, he's worked with Mike Tolkien and developed Mike Tolkien in a similar way. He's bringing him through. He's now with the Eagles and working well. So that's great for the game. We've got this cachet of small guys all there working real hard with new coaches who I think are going to be really good for us going forward. Um, I see they're obviously good coaches. They're learning the trade a little bit, but they're also learning. They have American experience, but they also are learning from Eddie about the global rugby experience as well. And that's hard to find a mentor of that kind. And uh, he's been real patient and uh, really dedicated to helping them achieve that goal. What's the key thing? What's the one thing like? What's the one example of a global experience coach? Well, I think I think there's two things. One is understanding patterns of play and the way that teams play and the way you play international rugby. And international rugby is very different to club rugby. Um, I also think that uh, American coaches are very organized, very uh, very into the, the process and understand the process. Um, and I think what Eddie adds to that is, yeah, that's the process, but these are the techniques. These are the skills we need to develop. This is the real basics that we have to dominate the, in the game, such as the tackle area, such as defense, such as handling, passing, not making mistakes. Those are the things that I think we can learn from Eddie. All right. Now, Bruce, um, before you jump in, you wanted to talk about... Uh the old days with Nigel and Gloucester. One of the things that 
you had you had spoken to Tolks and I about, and and it's probably in 2007, might have been 2008, is the game plan you played with Gloucester with the French pattern, where two and six played on one side, seven and eight played on the other side, and one, three, four, and five played in the middle, and you kind of and you kind of ran a pattern where you had great runners on the outside, you had power in the middle, and you would be able to maneuver your centers, fly halves, and, and your gifted players. And I just wanted to talk us through that pattern. We knew that we had to play a different way. We couldn't just play the same way that everyone played um, in order to win um, in the Premiership in England. So we changed the three-pod system. Um, what we did was we had fallback positions. So from first phase, we, we actually set a target of where we were going to go. Um, we would probably go Channel A, Channel B, or Channel C. The first breakdown will be there. And then we'd play off that, either play wide, back on the short side. We could play up the far open side. We could play anywhere we wanted. Stretch defences, made it real difficult for the defences to cope for the whole of the game if we played in that way. And we were very successful results. So it was a pretty simple pattern. In order to achieve that, we just had to practice real hard at where people went from the first phase. So that was how we set it up. It was sort of a development from the two-pod two systems everybody was using. And uh, two-pod to me was getting boring and predictable and every defence in the, in the league could understand it. We changed the three-pod and for a whole year we dominated. And then, of course, people started attacking the rocks because we were short on numbers in rocks. And it slightly changed the, uh, the way we did things. But it was successful. And I think there's a lesson as a coach is um, if you can think of new ideas, different ways to do things, that's actually how you're successful. Going through the same and doing the same as everybody else and being consistent is okay. You might win half your games and the other guys, you'll lose half your games. And, you know, it's not as exciting as it is trying to challenge yourself by doing things different. It's good to talk about a bit of coaching there, uh, Nigel. And uh, we'd love to have you back on to be more specific about it because it's great to have a CEO that's really on top of it. The last thing I wanted to ask, actually, and this is not a long question, is... I know you had to go back to the UK during the week for personal reasons, but is there a bit of buzz about Mike Petrie starting with Sale? Well, it's really funny. I was walking down Boulder High Street last week, and I bumped into a guy called Brian Kennedy. Brian Kennedy owns Sale Rugby Club. Um, he's got a house in Vale, and I just bumped into him in the street. And the first thing I said was, how's Mike Petrie getting on? And uh, from what I can tell, you know, he's finding it very hard. Um, it's extremely physical. They're training every day at the moment. Um, I think it's raining, so we'll be getting used to Manchester. Um, it'll be dark soon over there as well, so um, he's got a long, hard season ahead of him, but he'll really enjoy it. Um, he'll be backing up some pretty good players. He'll be playing against some really strong ones, so he can only get better in that environment. And uh, despite what Bruce has done for him over the years, <laughs> next step is to be in the full-time environment, and Bruce has done a great job with him. He has. But now he knows he's got to go. And Bruce, um, it's probably a good thing that he's finding it hard. It means, you know, it's 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 an environment that's going to work for him. Well, the fact of the matter is, it, Mike and I felt that there was nothing that we could do to make him much better. Like we we could only we could only help him, and he could help himself to a certain level. He he needs to be in an environment where. Everybody around him is better than everybody we have. We, you know, we're we're an, we're an amateur club, and, and that's the way it goes. And and that that's the problem with America is that when you go to the Guinness Premiership, everybody in the Guinness Premiership wants to play for England or whatever country they're from. Everybody in the Super League doesn't necessarily want to play for America. A lot of them just want to play for their club. Like we, I think we have the best tight head prop in America. 
and he has absolutely no interest in playing for America. And and like those kind of things become a real problem. And and that's how come like, the best players in America have to get the hell out of this league. They just have to leave. There's, they, they, we can't do anything for them. Once once they're good enough to go, they got to go. And we got to encourage them to go. And we got to bring kids through the under-20s, high school Americans, college All-Americans, and the college Premier League. That's what we want. Feed us in. Let's get pros. You know, maybe spend a year or two in the Super League for the top players, five or six years for the guys who are who are just just want to play club rugby. And I think Nigel would probably agree with that. Yeah, I think that the issue we've got is it's a finishing school. If you can go and play in those environments, you know, you've got Kevin Swurin over there in Argen now. You had obviously Naguinia was over in Biarritz. They've learned a hell of a lot while they've been there, and it's a real fast learn. You know, they they really do have to compete hard every day for their places. It's not an easy environment. And Sean Pittman's just arriving, I think, in London next week. It'd be great prior to the World Cup to have these guys having played 20 or 30 games in that environment and trained really hard and coached really well. You know, we can't offer that at the moment and we can't offer them the money to make sure they don't have to work. So, you know, the Super League gets them to one level, you know, the pro contracts are another. All right, Nigel, we've just scratched the surface with you. I think there's a lot of issues to talk about, but we'd love to have you on in, in coming weeks or a month's time if you would agree to that. Happy. Love to do that. It's great to speak to you guys and uh, keep up the good work you're doing because you're promoting the game of rugby in America and, uh, you know, I can't ask for more than that. We certainly enjoy doing that. All right, Nigel, thanks for joining us from Boulder tonight. Thank you. And there he is, Nigel Melville, the boss of USA Rugby. And Bruce, uh, well done. Good chat, and uh, we'll catch up next week, hey? Yeah, brother, and I, and I, and I agree that we need to have Nigel back because I think there's, there's further issues. And, and actually, Nigel has a lot of expertise in, in the area of rugby that you know possibly isn't understood in America. He, they, we need to have him on. He actually has coaching expertise and masterclass stuff that we could do with him that, that'll, be, that'll be quite good because he scratched the surface there. He didn't, he didn't get into everything he wanted to. Certainly does. He bridges yeah. all the aspects of the business. Sorry, Nigel. Well, whenever you like. Let me know, Bruce. I'm happy to help whenever I can. And if that helps for you, I'll do it. Terrific, terrific. All right, Nigel, thank you. And Bruce McLean, my good buddy from New York, thank you. We'll speak next week. And don't forget, sorry, before we go, Rugger Matrix America. There is now an iPhone app. It looks terrific. The link will be on rugbymag.com. So, Bruce, download it or get an iPhone first, probably. Uh, all I got to say is, USA 7s, baby, you got to be there. <laughs> that's where it's all happening. You got to be there, USA 7s, indeed. All right, that's Rugger Matrix America. Speak to you next week.